0: Leaders, we pose the problems of human beings in their relations with the world. Change. DP made this one right here. You know it's a hit. Impact. Liberation is a practice of action, team, inflection upon the world. Welcome to the pedagogy Justice. of the obsessed.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of Pedagogy of the Obsessed. This is Adam. And I'm Jim. And we are here to introduce you to a great episode. This week we've got Kathy Bodet. Uh, who, is, who is, who's who's Kathy Baudet?
0: Oh my gosh, she is a phenomenal educator in her own right. She is the director of the DataWise Institute, and uh, she's just an amazing, amazing teacher.
1: Equitable. You know that from a fact?
0: I know that from a fact. How do you I, know that? I'm personally biased. She is one of my teachers. But uh, no, she's phenomenal. She's the director of the DataWise Institute. What's DataWise? DataWise, it's that thing. A,
1: I think it's a way of working that's really about continuous improvement and really thinking about the fact that no organization is where it wants to be, right. which actually made her a great fit for our, this conversation Absolutely. around equity. Absolutely. And it's focused on the, you know the, the,
0: just a the relentless pursuit of using the best data available you know, to make sound decisions that really lead to equitable outcomes for children.
1: And so this week, we brought her on board because they've been really thinking about how can equity become a part of an organization that's been around for a long time. And it's definitely a value, a core value of the organization, but hasn't been explicit. I think they've done a really interesting take. Being able to watch firsthand
0: as she grappled with just how to bring the conversations of equity more into the DataWise Institute itself, which is a big deal here, and to watch her wrestle in real time with how to deal with this, these questions around equity and the pushback that go that, that came with that as well was just you know amazing to watch
1: yeah I think the thing for me was that I left this conversation thinking wow what humility in leadership that she exemplifies and just what focused leadership that took and to be able to have difficult conversations in an area that wasn't a comfortable or logical place for her to go as a leader and yet she jumped in a whole hog Eve-
0: I just think she embodies you know the you know, the, what what a transformational leader looks like. One that is willing to be vulnerable and admit where she is, talk about where she came from, and then be forward-looking, forward-facing into the future with, you know, where she would like to be in her own personal journey.
1: And, Jim, what do you think about the fact that Mariel's laugh is going to be all through this track?
0: You know what? <laughs> when I think Mariel's laugh, I just think sheer joy. So you, you got to love it. You and go.
1: that's what you're going to have when you listen to this episode, friends. There
0: we go. So, Mariel, you better be listening in.
1: It is one of our race, equity, and leadership episodes. And who do we got with us? We're keeping it real today with Kathy Bodet.
2: My name is Kathy Bodet. I'm a senior lecturer here at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm the director of the DataWise project and just really committed to helping educators learn how to work together to make sure that all kids, with a capital ALL, might succeed.
1: Would
0: you start then by sharing with us your education work journey? Tell us your story. My
2: story. I was an economics major back in college because I felt like There was something wrong with the way our country was set up. The inequality that was so prevalent was there and didn't really get all the answers that I hoped for. Uh, Went to grad school to try to get a better sense of why the outcomes for people were so different based on where they lived. Um, And so I decided to really focus on public policy and got moved into education policy as a really hopeful place within Mm -hmm. public policy.
1: And you say got moved.
2: Um, (laughs) So um, I remember really clearly having a meeting with my advisor and trying to explain why I wanted to do social policy, in particular programs for low-income people. And she really asked me about how active I wanted to be in that world and whether doing something that would proactively allow people to be successful might be a better fit for my personality. And I'm kind of a glass three-quarters
1: full sort of person. (laughs) You went from the data piece and kind of this quantitative has been a through line Mm -hmm. and that the education came later. Mm -hmm. When did the continuous improvement bring those two together?
2: Exactly. It was sort of right around when No Child Left Behind. There was just a a really concrete opportunity to get involved with a project that was led by Professor Richard Bernine and joined by Lit City, which was looking at what Boston Public Schools were doing to make sure that people took a high road to making sense of all the data that was landing on their desks. Creative principals and teachers who were having our state test data come into their worlds, and then they were using it to actually change how teaching was happening. They were using that high stakes data to inspire a deep look at lots of kids' data, looking at student work and how kids spoke in class and the projects and how they work together to really understand what learning looked like so that then they could turn the mirror on themselves and figure out what teaching look like.
1: We really want to jump into some stories with you about the kind of your work with DataWise and particularly your focus around equity. Recently, DataWise has really been reconsidering the role of equity in the work. What have you learned taking a longstanding organization? organization? organization and making equity an explicit part of the work.
2: From my perspective, DataWise was created as a tool for equity. When DataWise was coming into being, my understanding was that we were creating it as a tool for equity, because it seemed like there was such a high likelihood that the tremendous emphasis on data in the No Child Left Behind years was going to have a disproportionate negative impact on the kids who probably could least afford to have their educational quality go down. We were worried that people would start narrowing the curriculum, start thinking about kids as equal to their test score, start putting kids into buckets and saying all kids of a particular race have these low scores compared to another race, and having that maybe even reinforce beliefs that we hope people be working against. And so, That's what I thought DataWise was all about. But as we taught over the years the the model, in exit surveys, I would ask people, you know, um, tell me about the extent to which you feel that diversity issues related to um, this course were well addressed. That's actually a standard question that's asked of all courses here. And was just shocked to see that there was a large percentage of people who checked not applicable. So that's what tipped me off, that there was something happening with the way we were teaching the material that was not showcasing data-wise as a way to achieve equity.
1: So as you've approached that and tried to make it more explicit, how have you explored that balance around making it more explicit but not feeling like an add-on? What kind of struggles have you had to really make sure that it's core to the work?
2: Well, Adam, struggles is a great word (laughs) because it turned out, I thought well, equity's all over this course. And so then I went back and I searched on words like equity, diversity, inclusion, and realized it wasn't in my lesson. A data-driven approach. It was, yeah. That's that's, that's the only way I know. That was very wise. Uh (laughs) I realized it was not fully integrated, and it wasn't that classic thing of, like, I taught it, but they didn't learn it. And it's like I wasn't even putting it out there. And so we started with what we thought was going to be a one year let's just overhaul the course get equity in there where it belongs and be done with it but we're now in sort of year three because what we quickly learned is that it takes a lot if something should have been foundational and it's not there from the beginning it takes a lot to put it sort of back in And so, to give you an example of that, the way we have sort of eight steps that people need to go through, and we've got kind of a, a checklist for each step about what are the things that you want to do, say, when you are at step five, examining instruction. But we didn't have on our checklist any questions about who's instruction are we examining? What are we looking for when we get into classrooms? Are we looking for anything around how different students or different groups of students are being treated? Like It it wasn't kind of baked in, and so we realized that we had to kind of take it in pieces.
1: So we'd love to jump into the four questions with you. Right. As our as our listeners know, these come from Glenn Singleton's Courageous Conversations, right. and we think that it gives everybody a approach into these conversations around how can we really think about race, equity, and all sorts of diversity. So let's start with the head. Sounds like a good place for data, right, Jim? That's right.
0: <laughs> what is uh, an article or report that you have read recently about race that resonated with
2: you? I'd love that you started with head, uh, Jim, because that's where I started, <laughs> uh-huh. so like a softball for me. <laughs> I loved the first chapter from uh, Richard Milner's Start Where You Are, But Don't Stay There. And part of why I loved it, because there's this gorgeous graph, I you mean, know, a table at the end that you can hear me flipping around, getting ready. Yeah. table, um, which is an explanatory framework on opportunity. And anything that's got rows and columns speaks right to me. And what it basically did is it laid out for me some constructs that had been in the air that I was breathing or the water I was swimming in, to quote colleague Darnisa Amante, and just sort of laid out, there's certain constructs, let's say, like he has colorblindness as the first one. And what does that look like? So that's column two. And then what are the educator mindsets that go along with being colorblind? And I was able to follow that kind of progression and then see, um, the last column is instructional consequences. If you believe in colorblindness in color and then you have these mindsets about the way you think it would be bad for me to acknowledge um, the racial backgrounds of the students I'm teaching, then what are the consequences that come from that? That sort of cause and effect helped me to break down some of the things that were going on in my head and begin to understand them in a way where I could start to maybe act.
1: As a leader, it's still public, and it's still something that you're figuring out while you're working with other people. You were learning about this colorblindness and going through this developmental journey. Mm -hmm. You were doing it in a public space as a model in the moment.
2: Once I sort of really started to focus on how much I wanted to grow in my understanding of race and equity, I could tell there was a lot to learn And I sort of have a motto of never write alone, never teach alone. And so my go-to strategy was to surround myself with a a teaching team where we could kind of work through some of these issues together. So I'd say that it was public within my teaching team to just, you know, we started with hopes and fears. We said, you know, what are our hopes and fears around trying to reorient data-wise to make it more clear how it can be used in service of equity and you know we were afraid of the classic things that we were going to do harm we were going to make mistakes we were going to alienate people we were going to look racist we were going to look ignorant (laughs) and um, it was easy to start with a small group of teaching colleagues to sort of put those vulnerabilities on the table and then work together to the point where we were like, okay, we think this is ready for prime time. We can we can bring this to our class of about 70, 80 students and, and test this out. Um, and then we were pretty candid with them about what we were doing. And we acknowledged that there had been this misconception on our part that equity was more explicitly integrated than we realized. There had been a misconception that we had that DataWise was addressing equity more than it actually was and we were clear with folks that we were trying to address that and one of our just go-to strategies all the time is daily feedback so asking people in each class um, you know give us your candid feedback don't candy coat it how did it go and we got applause for trying in the first year (laughs) we got people saying we believe that your intentions good here but you're not really getting to where you say you want to go yet so good luck next year Mm -hmm. and we've done so we've been building on that kind of feedback and it was the idea of in year one the, the main thing was you're not being clear about what you mean by equity I think you're assuming that everyone in the class has a shared understanding of what equity is and without that happening we're not going to get anywhere. So that was kind of a big critique of the first year. And then a critique of the second year was this thing about equity being an add-on versus fully integrated. We, I think we did a better job of defining equity, but now our work is cut out for us to make it you know feel foundational.
1: Should we talk about the heart? So out the the heart. heart. But would you tell us a story about an experience of race that you've had as a learner and how it made you feel? What was the impact on your education? To be
2: honest with you, I didn't realize how much of a role race played in my education at first. I actually remember as a grad student, people talking about, we need to create a feeling of belonging here and everybody is supposed to be here and actually having the internal dialogue, well, of course I belong here. And it just seemed like, well, what's not to belong to? And actually, even I would say, if I'm being honest with you, went the extra step to thinking that there was something wrong with the people who felt that they didn't belong. Like it was some shortcoming that they had. And like, I was good at belonging. (laughs) Um, It was actually traveling to Japan that helped me see that I don't belong everywhere. And that in a situation that's not set up for me to succeed in, I'm going to be as sort of out to sea as the next person. And so going in particular, it was the characters everywhere. Like if you go to France or Spain, you can kind of at least sound out a word, but in Japan, I had no idea if I was supposed to read up or down and what anything meant. I couldn't infer things from context. The place wasn't set up like I was in Tokyo and there was no way that it wasn't set up for me, for my needs to be able to get what I wanted. I just had to figure it out. And I've taken that sort of, I'm outside of my country mentality and tried to apply it in my current world and try to like, whenever I feel a sense of belonging, I try to ask myself, what if this were happening in Arabic?
1: What I appreciate about that is like, it's such a concrete example mm-hmm. that like anybody could take on.
2: You know, it's funny. I actually have an image in my head of a room that's got sort of Arabic writing all over it. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the middle of it. And there's something being said on those walls. And I'll put myself in that room maybe five times a week and just be like, what am I not understanding about the experience of the person that I'm with?
0: Let's move to the soul. So tell us a story about how your beliefs regarding race have impacted your career as an educator.
2: I feel like I need to call it my evolving beliefs. Um, (laughs) I'd say the thing that I'm coming to understand is the importance of story and that what was convenient when I was a grad student with, you know, rings of data and like, oh yeah, let's disaggregate this by race and doing things in sort of big buckets... That actually, at the time, felt like it was good practice to to do that kind of disaggregation. And now, as a teacher, I feel like what's way more important is to try to just be a story gatherer and with with my students to try to understand better where they're coming from, where are the students that they serve coming from. And so instead of being at like a, a big data person, I feel like I'm coming to be way much more kind of qualitative in the way I try to understand the world. But the power of it to me is not those stories, but what happens when I stand up and realize the person to my right has a story, the person to my left has a story. And then it, when I can see all the people that I interact with as like walking stories, that helps me to not fall into kind of some of the sort of racial stereotyping that can be easy shorthand, but is actually really damaging.
1: And I think there's something about that image of being a story gatherer Mm -hmm. with that story right there, you're a people gatherer then Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that you gather people through their stories. Mm -hmm. And that's what data is about.
2: And that as I've over the years talked with educators, it's the ones that say that is not a number. That is my student. That's right. (laughs) And, and like, The the responsibility you have to a student with a name and a face is so different from the responsibility you have to somebody who scored a 62. Bringing that human piece back in has actually become kind of my, my passion.
1: As you think about being a leader, as you think about being an educator, as other people are inspired to act, what should they do?
2: The turning point for me in becoming more courageous around working for equity was realizing that the things that I already know how to do well could be used in service of equity. We have um, this whole thing called the ACE Habits of Mind in DataWise, and the A stands for a shared commitment to action assessment and adjustment. And um, it sort of works against the habit of mind of, like, analysis paralysis what was interesting was when I realized I spend all day telling people don't wait until you can get it perfect just work with some what the data you have make a hypothesis, try something out see how it goes and then I realized oh I should do that in my work for equity <laughs> I should follow my own advice which is to try something knowing it's not going to be right the first time and have that willingness to go at it and keep adjusting. So other people do that the same. The second habit is intentional collaboration. And that means like thinking really carefully about who is in a conversation and what their roles are for the conversation and how you kind of take care of the conversation so that all voices are heard. And I realized that kind of deliberateness that allows us to create equity of voice can actually be then in service of our greater goals for equity among like student outcomes. I decided I already have that to build on. And, you know, one of the things in the, the Milner article is about, you know, not having a deficit mindset. So I was like, I have to not have a deficit mindset with myself and believe I've already done a bunch of thinking about how to make it so that there's equity of voice. So let me double down on that uh, and sort of leverage that, that strength. And then the last uh, one is habit of mind that we talk about is the relentless focus on evidence. And so for me, I feel like I need to define evidence maybe even broader than I ever had before. The idea of counting stories as evidence, welcome them into those stories, into the fold, and also asking, who is discussing this evidence with me? Can they be able to show me my blind spots so that I see things in that evidence that I would not have otherwise seen? So that's a, that's a big piece of it. Those things together... Thinking of evidence more broadly and being really careful about who to analyze that with, I think is really important. And I feel like if I do those things and if our listeners um, do these things, I think it allows to uh, sort of a starting place for making next steps into um, a better world.
1: Thank you for joining us on Pedagogy of the Obsessed. Awesome.
0: We pose the problems of human beings in their relations with the world. Knowledge emerges only through invention and reinvention, through the restless and patient-continuing, hopeful inquiry human beings pursue in the world, with the world, and with each other. The solution is not to integrate them into the structure of oppression, but to transform that structure so that they become beings for themselves. Liberation is a practice of action and reflection on the world.